Welcome to Prehistory. In this episode, Henry Morgan, possibly the most famous pirate of his time, and his last big score on the old Panama City. Let's get started. Before we get into the details of Henry Morgan's big Panama expedition, here's some background. Spain had been the first European superpower to invade the New World and mine precious gold and silver deposits from the Americas at the cost of native lives. They were planting their flag in all the best spots in South and Central America and the Caribbean, like the bratty kid on the playground claiming the best toys. Too bad for Spain, the other European countries said, okay, we'll just take the toys from you instead and push you in the sand for good measure. In the 16th century, sailors had government permission to seize trade ships of enemy nations. These were privateers, essentially legal pirates. Pirates were also called buccaneers, and you'll hear me use the terms interchangeably in this story. Buccaneers was a term initially used to refer to non-Spanish settlers and traders, and by the 16th to 18th century, refer to pirates or privateers who operated in the Caribbean. A portion of their plunder was paid to the government, and the rest they typically pumped into, lo into the local economy by being regular visitors to taverns and brothels. Other than the cash infusions, the pirates provided another valuable service to Jamaica's governors. After taking the island from Spain, most of the English fleet didn't stick around, and the rest who did struggled with the tropical climate and diseases. So, the pirates served as a deterrent to any bright ideas of revenge from Spain, and functioned as a kind of naval reserve and national guard. Henry Morgan, a Welshman, had been a part of the Jamaican pirate scene from the very beginning. He participated in the unsuccessful attack the British launched against Santo Domingo in 1655, which led them to take Jamaica from the Spanish to save face. And in 1660, his uncle was appointed Lieutenant Governor of Jamaica. Morgan later married his uncle's daughter. Ah, inbreeding, the language of love among the wealthy. His many adventures include an attack on Cuba, Hispaniola, Venezuela, and the heavily fortified city of Portobello in Panama as a privateer. In 1671, Morgan headed for Panama again with a fleet of 50 ships and 2,000 men. Now, why Panama? It was the center of Spain's wealth in the New World, and it would also provide a good political cover to show the Spanish who's boss and not to mess with England. Providence and Santa Catalina were tiny islands about 300 miles northish of the Panama mainland. Morgan had captured Providence as a strategic location once from Spain, before Spain took it back. Those islands would be the pirates' first stop on the way to the Isthmus. Isthmus, that's a fun word. Then, on the mainland, the main entry points were either the city of Portobello or Fort San Lorenzo, both on the north coast of the Isthmus. Panama City was on the opposite coast to the south, and of course, the Panama Canal didn't exist yet, so the crew would have to make their way mostly on foot overland from one coast to the next, depending on their choice of route. Okay, got the plan, so let's get started. So step one, Providence Island. The Spanish settlers of the tiny island had already bundled up into a heavily fortified garrison by the time Morgan's fleet arrived because Panama had been warned of the planned attack. The buccaneers had to scrounge for food while they tried to flush the islanders out of their fort. 
An essential part of the plan had been to kidnap or coerce a local to act as a guide on their journey inland since none of them had ever traveled to Panama itself. So this was already proving to be quite a roadblock. Morgan decided to send a message to the Providence Island governor, surrender or die. The governor sent back an even better proposition instead of calling Morgan's bluff. Lead your men to this other force on the island and I'll sail there too. Then, listen carefully now, you're going to kidnap me, kidnap me, and force me to give you entry into our fort. With me captured, the rest of the garrison will surrender. No, we gotta make this look convincing, so we should at least fire some shots at each other, but make sure the guns aren't actually loaded or aim at a bird or something, I don't know, but do not actually kill us. So Morgan thought this was a great idea and they pulled it off. You see, this plan would save the governor's neck from both Morgan and the wrath of the Spanish crown. After all, you might punish a man who just gave up to your sword enemy, but if he had put up a good fight first and was just overpowered, then what's that guy to do? So Morgan captured Providence Island again. He got food for his men, ammunition, and four Panamanians who knew the layout of the land and was willing to join for a cut of the spoils. Step two, San Lorenzo. So there were two paths Morgan's crew could take from the north coast to Panama City, which, as I said before, was on the opposite coast. One option was to take the city of Portobello and to go over some mountains. And then the other option was to take the city of San Lorenzo, which would mean a river route. You see, the Chagres River stretched from San Lorenzo to the port of Venta de Cruces, and Venta de Cruces was just a couple of miles from Panama City. So theoretically, the men could sail upriver, or at least as far as the river was suitable for boats, and then walk the rest of the way. Of course, the Spanish are not stupid. There's no way they would leave such a convenient, watery road to their Fort Knox wide open. The Chagres River was well protected, especially the mouth where San Lorenzo guarded. Still, it was Morgan's best option. After an initial failed attempt, the pirates managed to capture the castle at San Lorenzo with about a quarter of their full force. Their success was mostly thanks to one of the pirates firing a flaming arrow over the wall and into the Spanish's gunpowder cache or a loaded cannon. Either way, the explosion and the resulting fire created a breach in the defense that they capitalized on. The pirates spared no one. A few of the Spanish managed to escape out the back door and sail upriver, but those who didn't make it got hacked to death. In this battle, the buccaneers lost 30 out of the 470 who had been sent to take down Lorenzo. And San Lorenzo lost, guess, 300 and 60 men. Get used to that ratio in this story. Okay, now step three, the Chagres River and the jungle. So Morgan left some men to protect San Lorenzo, covering his back for an easy exit once they achieved their goals. But he also made the very questionable call to have the men barely carry any supplies. He just assumed that the next stop at a fort or town along the way would top them up with any supplies they needed. Oh, buddy, no. Guess you'll have to learn the hard way. 
In the meantime, Don Juan, the governor of Panama City, was making a deal with his local prisoners. He would let them out of jail and give them guns if they attacked Morgan's crew traveling up the river. Okay, deal. The attack squad of about 300 men trekked downriver, found an ideal vantage point by a bend, lined up out of sight behind the trees, and waited. They were expecting the 400 men they had heard about from the San Lorenzo survivors. They waited and watched with their guns trained on the river as one canoe or ship drifted in sight, then another, and another, and another, and another. More and more ships came until they realized they would be trying to fight at least four to one against 1,600 men. Nope, they did not sign up for this. What were they? Some kind of suicide squad? No, thank you. They just sat there and continued aiming their guns without firing. Even when the English got out of their canoes to stretch their legs and take a nap on the shore, these men still hid behind the trees with their rifles trained as if they were planning to do something, but actually didn't. Don Juan was disgusted when his men came slinking back without firing a single shot. He would have to think of a plan B before the pirates arrived. Back to Morgan and his men who were trying to figure out how to arrive at all. The Chagres River had dead end forks along the way that the crew had wasted time going down before they realized they had made a wrong turn and doubling back. And they also had to manage maneuvering their boats around, around mangrove roots and falling trees. By the third day, Morgan had to have most of his men leave the ships behind and hoof it, since the river was getting shallow due to lack of rain. Day four, they actually hoped to run across a Spanish fort, heavily armed or not. A fort meant food. Day five, the men were tired of the jungle. It's been three days since their last decent meal. They had found a secret stash of food, but Admiral Morgan commanded it be given to the sickest and weakest men. Surprisingly, the men obeyed this order, but they were not happy. Day six, some of the men are eating grass. Oh wait, lucky them, they found a barn with maize. Oh no, this might have been a setup. They are ambushed by Indians who are tracking them along the river. The Indians laughed at the pathetic men trying to fight back weakly. Some of the men tossed away the food they found while trying to chase the Indians, assuming the natives would be easy kills with better quality food. They were wrong about the Indians being easy kills. Day seven. Venta de Cruces is pretty close now, just gotta hang in there. Day 8. They arrive at Venta de Cruces and the town was set on fire by the inhabitants. The Spanish had no intention to leave the English anything useful. The only food Morgan's men did manage to find was some jars of wine and a sack of bread. The men crammed down the wine and bread and immediately threw up. Morgan was terrified that the wine had been poisoned, and actually that would have been a good plan, but their stomachs just couldn't handle wine chugging after days of near starvation. Morgan pushes his men to make the last stretch to Panama City before they're too weak to fight. I feel like we've passed that point, but okay. They are attacked along the narrow route between Venta de Cruces and Panama City by Indians. Finally, the pirates make it out of the jungle. By the next day, they can see the South Sea, merchant ships on the bay, and at the foot of the hills below them, cows. I think you can guess what happened next. Absolute carnage. 
Someone play a song for the cows who were unceremoniously butchered where they stood and their meat was barely cooked properly by the half-starved men. Refreshed, the men started to have a party. I mean, their target is right in sight, but you guys are going to party first, okay? To be fair, they were so relieved to be alive and as, and as far as they were concerned, there was nothing but gold in their future as a reward for toughing it out. Let's go back to the Spanish and their preparations for the incoming attack. The little that Don Juan tried didn't get him very far. He had a small population of fighting men to work with, and the Spanish had allowed the reputation of the pirates to turn them into indestructible boogeymen in their minds. When the two armies finally met, the pirates went back to functioning as a lean mean killing machine and wiped them out. They were pretty much slaughtered and it didn't help that many of the Spanish were ready to retreat at the drop of a hat or drop of a sword. Don Juan decided if we can't win, then neither will you. He commanded that the city's stash of gunpowder be lit up. The resulting kaboom was heard as far as six miles away. Henry Morgan wrote, Thus was consumed the famous and ancient city of Panama, which is the greatest mart for silver and gold in the whole world. They watched the city burn throughout the night. By morning, the English were anxious to see what was left. They found some melted silver and gold, but nothing close to what they had come for. Had they suffered a week of almost dying in the jungle for scraps? They tortured and captured surviving citizens for information and added a modest amount to their stash and, they, and then they learned the truth. The governor's backup plan had been to move the bulk of Panama's wealth onto a ship sitting just offshore. Morgan's crew even had a chance to catch up to the ship, but they were so boozed up that when he told them to take it, they just yawned in his face. And by the time they sobered up, the ship was long gone, out of reach, and they were not amused. They took their anger out on the locals and tortured them without mercy. After this devastating attack, Panama City was abandoned. The current Panama City is built in a new location. Morgan returned to Jamaica a hero, but the local governor who had backed the whole expedition was sweating bullets. England and Spain were technically at peace at the moment thanks to a treaty signed a year earlier. Both countries agreed to outlaw and stamp out piracy, and in return, Spain recognized English territories in the Americas, including Jamaica. Jamaica didn't hear about the treaty until after Morgan had already left on his escapade. And yes, indeed, the Spanish King Charles II demanded retribution from the English King Charles II over the destruction of Panama. The governor of Jamaica, Modiford, and Morgan were arrested and sent to England. The governor had to sit in the Tower of London for two years, while Morgan, who the king and the whole country was in awe of, was allowed to kind of meander the streets while everyone pretended to think about what to do to him. In the end, they decided to knight Morgan and send him to Jamaica as lieutenant governor. Morgan was now tasked with clearing out pirates from Jamaica's shores. He looked down on his former colleagues, even describing them as vermin. Once, a ship pulled into Montego Bay and Morgan found it suspicious that no one came on land. He invited the men on the ship to King's House in Port Royal, his preferred residence, and served them a rich dinner with local rum to wash it all down. 
As everyone loosened up, the men admitted to being pirates to Morgan, who entertained them with stories of his own adventures and continued to ply them with rum. The young men were hanging on to every word. This was their hero, the famous Admiral Morgan. The next morning, they were arrested, put in chains, and taken to court with Morgan looking down at them with cold eyes from the judge's seat. I'm sure you're not surprised to hear they were sentenced straight to the hangman. Morgan lived the rest of his life in poor health. I find it highly amusing that the product he's best known for today was the main cause of his death. Drinking was all Morgan had left after a life of high adventures. Running a plantation, petty feuds, and politics left him bored with no outlet. His only enjoyment was to drink himself into a stupor day after day, reliving his glory days to his lackeys. His stomach swelled so much that his tailor couldn't fit a coat over it. He had no appetite and his legs were swollen swollen and painful. Years of alcohol abuse had left Morgan with dropsy, where the body contains excess fluid. While medicine was still very medieval at this time, even Morgan's doctor could see he needed a lifestyle change and told him to lay off the liquor. Morgan ignored his advice and continued drinking. Finally, he died in August 1688 at the age of 53. He left most of his estate to Elizabeth, his beloved wife and first cousin. Pirates got a one-day reprieve to attend his funeral, and many of his old buddies came to pay their respects, even though many were still bitter about Panama. He was buried at St. Peter's Church. Spain lost a lot of its clout after Morgan's Panama expedition. For a long time, the superpower had been riding on the fumes of the early conquistadors that had taken over the Americas before France, England, and the Dutch got into the game. Morgan's expedition now showed the weakness of the Spanish Empire and its weak hold on its colonies. Now to wrap up, Morgan had helped capture the island in 1655, ushered in the golden age of piracy, and then helped to hunt down his brethren towards the tail end of the Golden Age. He missed the great earthquake that plunged Port Royal and his body into the sea by two years. By then, Port Royal had garnered a reputation as being the wickedest city on Earth. So when the earthquake plunged it into the sea, the English, and not to mention the Spanish, thought it was um, their just desserts. This episode is a little longer than normal. It was hard to cut anything out of that expedition to Panama because it was a bit bananas how prepared and yet unprepared the pirates were thanks to their arrogance. And the Spanish's response to the attack between doing nothing and blowing up their own city sky high gave me whiplash. Anyway, thanks for listening as always. Please share, subscribe, review this podcast on whatever platform you listen to. I'll be here next Monday for more History for You to Pre. 